Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Giants of the Faith podcast. My name is Robert Daniels and I'm the host of the show where we focus on individuals from the age of the church who have lived out their faith in a unique or interesting way. They are people who are giants in the history of Christendom. Now, these are Christian Hall of Famers. One of my favorite things about doing this podcast is how much I learn each episode. Whether I'm familiar with the subject or not, I always learn something new about each one. And I'm always inspired in some way. Today's featured subject, Netherlander Corey Tenboom, was virtually unknown to me, but she is one of the great Christian heroes of the 20th century, as I've discovered. She, along with her family, resisted the Nazis during World War II, sheltered Jews from the Gestapo, and worked to spread her faith across the globe. I hope that you'll enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed learning about Corey. Cornelia Corey Arnalda Johanna Tenboom was born on April 15, 1892, in Amsterdam, Netherlands, to parents Casper and Cornelia. She was the youngest of four siblings, having two older sisters and one older brother. Corey's family was active in the Dutch Reformed Church and was the kind of family that lived out their faith. At age five, Corey accepted Christ through her mother's ministrations. The entire family, which included three aunts that lived with them, was devoted to Christ. Each day, they would gather around the table to talk and sing and pray. Jesus was like a family member to them, and Casper, the father, modeled a personal relationship with Christ for his family. As a young woman, Corey was spurned by the man that she thought she would marry when he became engaged to a wealthy woman. Corey was heartbroken, but her father encouraged her to find another outlet for her love and to ask God to show it to her. It was then that her strong faith in the sovereignty and providence of God took hold in her life, and this faith would see her through the many trials that she would face in the future. As World War I ended, Corey and her family started fostering the children of Dutch missionaries. They also gave food and money for German children who were suffering from the ravages of the Great War. The Ten Booms were not wealthy, but they were giving of what they had. Casper Tenboom was a watchmaker, and Corey followed in his footsteps by becoming the first licensed female watchmaker in the Netherlands in 1922. She also attended Bible college, and she earned a diploma there. Wanting to make an impact in their community, Corey and her sister Betsy started a club for teenage girls called the Church Walk Club to teach them the Bible and some useful skills, such as sewing and public speaking. Soon, the club expanded throughout Harlem and was impacting girls throughout the city. Things were going pretty well for the Ten Booms until May 1940 when the Germans invaded Holland. Betsy and Corey's clubs were shut down, and the Ten Booms struggled under the oppressive Nazi rule for two years. In May 1942, a Jewish woman came to the Ten Boom home begging for help. Her husband had been taken by the Nazis a few months earlier, and she knew that they were coming for her soon. She also knew that the Ten Booms had helped their Jewish neighbor with some difficulties a few months prior. The Ten Booms didn't hesitate, but they took the woman in. Casper told her that in this house, God's people are always welcome. With this decisive move, the Ten Booms became an active part of the Dutch underground. The underground sent an architect to build a false wall in Corey's bedroom, behind which up to six people could hide in what they called the Baye, or hiding place. They also installed a buzzer system so that when the Nazis would perform their routine street-to-street inspections, the guests had as much notice as possible to retreat to the hiding place. 
Throughout the war, hundreds of Jews and other members of the underground lived there for a time. In addition to the hiding place, the Ten Booms took in fugitives for more brief stays in the main house until other safe houses could be found for them. Corey used her work in the clock shop as cover for making contact with the underground. She procured ration books for Jewish families who were denied them by the occupied government. At one point, she was at the home of the man in charge of the local ration card distribution office. He asked her how many cards she needed. I opened my mouth to say five, she later wrote. But the number that unexpectedly and astonishingly came out instead was 100. And the man delivered. The tin booms were all in and they were bold. Jews in the occupied territories were required to wear a yellow star of David, and so Casper decided he would too, to show solidarity. Even though that put him at risk. Cousins of Corey and Betsy were leaders in the resistance, as was their brother Willem, who was by this time a Dutch Reformed minister. Willem ran a nursing home for the elderly when the Nazis took power and he used this for years to shelter Jews fleeing Germany. The Ten Boom family was a light in a very dark place. In all, an estimated 800 people owed their lives to the Ten Booms. Unfortunately, their work attracted the attention of the Gestapo. Dutch informer Jan Vogel told the Nazis of the Ten Booms' activities, and on February 28th, 1944, their house was raided. The secret police found their stash of ration books and other underground materials. They did not find, however, the secret room or the false wall. The entire Ten Boom family was arrested, but the Jews hiding behind the wall were safe. In addition to the family, other members of the underground were captured when they unwittingly walked into the house while the Nazis were still there. In total, there were about 30 people arrested that day. The Ten Booms were taken to Scheveningen Prison, where they were interrogated. Most were released, but Casper, the head of the family, was defiant. If I go home today, he told them, tomorrow I will open my door to anyone who knocks for help. It would be an honor to give my life for God's chosen people. He died in the prison ten days later, lying on a cart in the hallway alone. Corey and Betsy were kept in the prison until June 1944, and then they were sent on to the Herzogenbusch concentration camp, and then on to the infamous Ravensbrück camp in Germany. The sisters kept close company, and they remained committed to Christ during their imprisonment. They witnessed to and converted many women while in confinement. But unfortunately, Betsy's health collapsed at Ravensbrück, and she died on December 16, 1944, at 59 years old. Just 12 days later, Corey and some older women were released, and she made her way by train across Germany and back to her family in the Netherlands. She found out later that her release was a mistake, and based on a clerical error. Just days after she was set free, all the other women her age were sent to the gas chamber. But it seems God was not through with her. Back in Holland, Corey spent ten days in a nursing home to recuperate. Providentially, her nurse was one of the women from the girls' club that Corey and Betsy had set up years before. She cared for Corey and nursed her back to health. After the war was over, Corey became an international advocate for the kingdom of God. She encouraged her countrymen to reconcile with the Germans and with those that had collaborated with them. When we confess our sins, she said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. If God forgives sins, then man should too, she argued. It wasn't just talk for her either. 
At one service in Berlin in 1947, she was confronted with the ultimate test. I want to read you an excerpt from an article written by Corey for the November 1972 edition of the magazine Guideposts. Check the show notes for the link to the full article. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness fumbled in my pocketbook, rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him, and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. I knew it, not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, 
no matter what the physical scars were. Those that nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that, and I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Corey became what she called a tramp for the Lord. She traveled around the world, often not knowing her destination or how she would get there. She eventually visited 64 different countries, spreading her message of forgiveness and reconciliation. She even wrote a letter of forgiveness to Jan Vogel, the informant who had turned her family into the Gestapo. Ten Boom went on to write several books, including the popular The Hiding Place, which told the story of her experiences during the war and was made into a film in 1975. She conducted countless radio broadcasts and was heard by folks from every stripe. She was even knighted by the Queen of the Netherlands. She died on her birthday, April 15, 1983, at the age of 91. She had lived a life devoted to the service of the Lord. She'd taken her own personal tragedy and transformed it into a witness for the power of Christ for the whole world to see. Now that ends this episode of Giants of the Faith. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any comments or corrections, please send them along to podcast at giantsofthefaith.com. Until next time, God bless. <laughs>